to the Soil Talk podcast. I am your host, Tim Mundorf, Nutrient Management Lead with Central Valley Ag. In Soil Talk, we will dive into managing soil fertility and applied nutrients while pursuing top yield. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Soil Talk. We're going to kind of continue from our last episode. We've had Glenn Howell, the technical sales agronomist from Calcium Products here with us. Last episode, we talked about liming and and using pelletized limestone versus ag lime, some other lime sources, just the importance of pH and getting your pH right in the soil. Today, we're going to carry it over and talk about another product we work with a lot uh, from calcium products called SO4. It's uh, calcium sulfate. A lot of people also refer to it as gypsum. Similar to the 98G product, it's a, it's a nice pelletized product. Works well through all of our equipment, works well in our infrastructure, whether that's trucks or our uh, our holding bands, our buildings. Um, we can put together blends with it, uh, do verberate applications. So, Glenn, welcome back to Soil Talk. Well, thanks for having me, Tim. Happy to do it. So, we talked a lot about liming before, and, and this is really a, a completely different subject, completely different product. I mean, sometimes we'll talk about sulfur a little bit, trying to change soil pH. But when we talk about gypsum or calcium sulfate, and specifically your pelletized SO4, um, it's not a pH product, correct? No, that's right, Tim. So, calcium sulfate or gypsum lacks a molecule that is found in limestone that affects soil pH. So calcium carbonate or limestone has a molecule, the carbonate molecule, and that's the one that changes um, soil pH by combining with acidity or hydrogen molecules in the soil. Calcium sulfate or gypsum does not have that, and so calcium sulfate can be applied on a wide range of soil conditions but won't change the soil pH. So we're not not going to acidify the soil, we're not going to lime the soil, we're just going to put calcium and sulfur out there and look for good things to happen like um, improvement in soil compaction, soil crusting, soil tilth, um, and it comes from mostly the addition of calcium from gypsum. And the calcium that's in limestone is exactly the same chemically, but there are some pretty distinctive differences in solubility between limestone and gypsum. And so gypsum is much more soluble than limestone. We can put it out there. It'll solubilize again, regardless of soil pH conditions, whereas limestone does need to have that acidity there before it really um, solubilizes completely. But overall, gypsum is a much faster release of calcium and sulfur compared to um, limestone, which obviously doesn't have any sulfur at all. But gypsum is also a lot different solubility compared to other sulfur sources that are um, commonly used in the industry like ammonium sulfate or ammonium thiosulfate. And both of those um, jointly have sulfur in them as like gypsum but the solubility differences are pretty important as well as the other impacts of, of things like calcium on benefiting soil management and soil tilth. As you talk about solubility, it kind of brings up, you know, as a sulfur source, elemental sulfur, which is kind of the other end of the spectrum, right? I always put uh, ammonium sulfate or ammonium thiosol as very soluble sulfur source going to be immediate pretty much are available pretty much immediately as you put it down. Uh, gypsum, I kind of put as an in-between and 90% elemental sulfur, 
I'll put down as kind of uh, something that's going to take some time to be available, can be part of a good sulfur program, but you don't want to be counting on it uh, for, uh, say, a top dress for immediate uh, release of sulfur. Yeah, absolutely, Tim. So, um you know, one of the analogies that uh, I think a lot of us experienced as a young person is Goldilocks and the Three Bears, where we had the porridge that was too hot, the porridge that was too cold, and the porridge that was just right. And I kind of uh, relate that to sulfur. Um, if we have a, an in-season need for something that, that solubilizes very quickly, want hot porridge. Um Ammonium sulfate or ammonium thiosulfate probably fit into that category pretty well. They're going to release the sulfur very, very quickly. If we're looking to build sulfur over time, uh, maybe elemental sulfur fits into that as the, the too cold um, category in that it has to go through a lot of changes before it can become plant available. But in a long enough time frame and with the right conditions, it eventually will. And gypsum's kind of that just right. Um, it won't solubilize overnight, um, but it will solubilize usually in a couple of days. And, but it's also already in the sulfate form, which is how it differs from elemental. In that elemental, because of its name and because of its conditions, characteristics, it is not yet in a plant available form, but eventually it can be. How did I know that I was going to call gypsum in the middle and you were going to call it just right? Oh, I'll tell you, you've known me for a few years now. I'm guessing you've probably heard the, heard, heard me talk about things like this before. You know, you know, back to that pH change, it does create a lot of confusion. You know, with, with gypsum having or being calcium sulfate, you know, on one hand, it sounds like calcium. Well, that's like calcium carbonate. That's lime. So it's going to bring my pH up. On the other hand, it sounds like sulfur, and we know that elemental sulfur, because of that conversion from the elemental form to sulfate, it's going to uh, release some hydrogen in there, create some additional acidity um, that can bring pH down. But gypsum is truly pH neutral, and that's something a lot of growers don't catch. They'll put it down for one of those two reasons, because it's so closely related to the products that do change pH, but gypsum, in fact, does not with one big exception, and sometimes you'll go into that one, Glenn. Yeah, so there's a there's a few cases out there, um, not a lot necessarily in Nebraska. Um, we run into that a lot more as we go up into the Dakotas, um, certainly up into Canada, um, as well as areas like uh, California, where they use a lot of irrigation water and they have a very high um, loss of water vapor to the environment. But sodic soil conditions or areas of soil that have sodium in them are what I'm talking about. Um, sodium in the soil tends to make things stick together, um, is very detrimental to good plant health and good root development. And using gypsum um, can help with a lot of those soil conditions over time by a process called ion exchange where we put gypsum out there it solubilizes the calcium from gypsum attaches itself to the soil colloid and moves the sodium that is exchanged there or present already it kind of kicks that off and puts it out in the soil water where it will leach over time and so as we change the soil characteristics a little bit and get rid of some of the sodium the soil infiltrates water 
much more readily. We get a lot better air exchange in there. The root environment, the rhizosphere are completely different. And a lot of times we can see a very marked improvement in soil conditions and ultimately in plant growth and yield if we put gypsum on some of those places where sodic soil conditions are present. Yep. You know, the, the sodic soil conditions, it's not just the sodium in the soil, which can cause issues with uh, the ability of the plant to move water and bring water to itself, creating basically a saline condition, but it's also soil structure. The, the sodium uh, ions seem to make clay particles especially tie together very tightly. It doesn't seem to allow water between the clay plates very well and really creates issues with soil structure and the ability of any soil to infiltrate water, which you got a combination of a, a soil that holds water away from the plant because of its salinity combined with poor structure so it doesn't let water into the soil. You kind of have a recipe for disaster there. Yeah, that, that, to me, that ranks right up there at the top of the list as far as most difficult soil conditions to challenge to uh, to face with a challenge. I've, I've had some meetings and discussions with folks across different areas, and it's certainly a localized thing. Um, so you may have it and your may, neighbor may not, or you may have pockets of it and your neighbor may have huge pockets of it. And it's tied to the water table. It's tied to soil management and before. It's tied to climate. Um, it's just relaxed reacts from or happens from a lot of different soil conditions that happen to kind of coincide in some manner. Um, You know, if I'm a grower in Hamilton County, Nebraska, I'm probably not really focused on this. But if I'm a grower in in upper North Dakota or pockets of of areas such as east and north of Aberdeen, South Dakota, um, sodic soil conditions are out there. And I'll relate to it a story that I uh, encountered a couple of years ago. I was up in, in North Dakota giving a grower meeting and um, had some discussions afterwards and just trying to get a feel for how challenging the conditions were up there, how widespread they were. And I had a grower and, and there were several growers that uh, came up to me afterwards and, and said the same thing. I had a grower stand up during the meeting and said that he had pockets of his field that would not grow anything there was zero green material growing there. And he even described it as is that kosher, which is a very troublesome weed in that area, kosher refused to grow in these pockets. And those pockets were sodicity or sodic soil conditions were so challenging that as kosher doesn't grow, um, that's to me is right up there at the top of the list as far as most difficult things to encounter. And so, we talked about gypsum. They used some SO4 over time. They've gotten some improvement. The soil conditions are still there, but they've improved enough, at least, where they're harvesting um, some grain matter, some dry matter out of those pockets, either for forage or for grain. And, you know, we're helping to pay the bill. So if you've got sodic soil conditions, um, you're very aware of them. And I think you're also very aware of how big of an economic impact they may have. Yeah, you're right. You know, and it's not just sodic soils that you can use gypsum as an amendment for. And when we talk about gypsum, I think there's there's two conversations you have to have with the grower. Number one, it's it's a sulfur source. It's a great sulfur source. Works well for fall application, works well for spring application. Can be an early top dress, probably doesn't belong as a late top dress. It can be an early top dress. So you've got the sulfur part of it. But then you've also got that whole soil amendment part of it. And that's a lot of what you're talking about with the sodium. 
guys will also use gypsum as they try to balance out their ratios of especially calcium to magnesium. That seems to be one of the common ones for me. And what you can do is kind of get the double benefit of gypsum. You use it as a sulfur source. So maybe you're putting out hundred pounds of gypsum for a sulfur source, but as you see your calcium and magnesium based saturations, not quite lining up with where you want them to be, you can continue to get the, the benefit of, you know, an every year application of gypsum to slowly move that calcium percentage into a better spot. How does that conversation work for you with a grower? You know, I've had very similar conversations with that, Tim. Um, you know, I look at it as, as if I'm looking at a soil test, I'm probably going to pay attention to what the pH values are initially. If we're acidic, I'm going to recommend limestone to, to get that up there. But once we've established and got soil conditions for pH where we, where we think they should be, if we're looking for additional calcium, Calcium sulfate or gypsum is probably the right material that I would recommend. Um, it's going to provide sulfur, as you mentioned. It's also going to provide calcium. We're not going to change the soil pH. So we can improve the calcium levels from where they're at to maybe something a little bit higher, but we're not going to change the pH. And we're going to also going to do so at a much more soluble material from gypsum as we would with limestone. Um, Tim, I had a question for you. You mentioned calcium-magnesium ratios there. Um, Kind of what you would you how would you explain your general philosophy is is calcium magnesium ratios is that something that that you utilize and, and think represents soil conditions very well or, or would you use something different well there's always an argument there so you know our, our history of our land-grant universities um, there was some real interest in the ratio of the saturation of bases on those cation exchange sites that was really um, driven a lot in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. A lot of people kind of had that acceptance that you should get to these ideal base saturation ratios and your soil would be most productive and most profitable. And then I would say in the 60s and 70s, a lot of that kind of got shot down. The land grants did some work on it. They really found that as long as you had nutrient levels kind of where they needed to be, those base saturations didn't make a lot of difference. Now it seems like people on more of the, I'll call it the regenerative, the holistic management, maybe a little bit less uh, input oriented, uh, more soil health oriented, have kind of gone back to some of those base saturations, whereas some of the people like more from the industry have focused more again on the inputs and, and the academia, I would say is still more focused on get your soil nutrient levels right and don't worry about base saturation. I kind of ride the fence. It's, it's not as high on my priority list as like nitrogen and corn. I mean, that's a no brainer. If the corn's all yellow and grows two foot tall and dies, well, that's not going to work. So nitrogen is pretty much a driver in, say, corn. Soil pH is a big driver for me. Then I go to phosphorus, potassium, sulfur, zinc. But after that, I start looking at those base saturations pretty hard. And sometimes they're so far out of whack, I look at them right away. So I'm a little on the fence. I, I certainly understand all the great work the land grants have done and maybe disproving some of that work that was done back in the 40s and 50s. But I also see you know, water infiltration and soil health do seem to balance or match up a little bit better with a good base saturation uh, balance. So I'm a little torn on it. How's that for a long yeah, answer for a short question? <laughs> well, I wouldn't expect anything different from you, Tim. So thank you for that. <laughs> Um, I would I would certainly agree with with much of what you said there. The uh, the distinction that I might um, focus on for just a minute is is that 
I look at base saturation values on a soil test, and I certainly agree with you that they're probably not my first area of interest when looking at the soil test, but uh, we kind of work, work our way down through things like pH and phosphorus, potassium, et cetera. We were going to come to that at some point. What I would comment on is that I look at the individual values. So something like calcium is maybe being 65 percent base saturation or 65 percent of the exchange sites have calcium in there to 75 percent is a good range that a lot of people talk about. What I don't like to look at or, or think probably misrepresents it a little bit, at least for myself, is folks that use a ratio. So X amount of parts of calcium to Y amount of parts of magnesium, for example. And I've heard people out out there talk about ratios between, you know, four to one calcium magnesium ratio to as much as 12 to one. Well, that's a pretty wide range. And what I think is, is oftentimes misunderstood is that we may have the right in quotation marks ratio, but we may still have too much or too little of one or more of those things. And so I look at things more individually and say, okay, calcium is kind of where we need to have it. We're good there. Oh, magnesium maybe is a little excessive or um, we need more magnesium and look at things specifically on a nutrient basis for that and pay very little attention to what the ratio is of one to another. And there's certainly a lot of philosophies out there that would um, differ 180 degrees from, from the one that I express, and that's fine. Um, soil science, from my understanding, and I've been in the industry for a couple of days now, um, there's a lot of science to it, but there's also a little bit of an art point to it. And uh, I think that goes back to individual understanding, individual education, you know, beliefs and all those things. And I'm not here to, to differ, disagree with you or anybody else, even though I like to disagree with you on occasion. But uh, ultimately is that I think there's there's ample opportunities for um, both philosophies, both calcium-magnesium ratio, as an example, compared to what's the calcium number, what's the magnesium number, and looking at those separately. I think there's room for both. Uh, I just feel that myself that I don't think that the ratio is the right fit for um, for what I think is appropriate. I'm with you on that one, Glenn. Where, where I really look at it would be a really high um, magnesium-based saturation. When you start getting 25 and 30 and 35% base saturation of magnesium, I really think we're missing a little bit in water infiltration and maybe available calcium out there to the plant, probably also available potassium. So that's where, you know, another place where I would uh, get the grower to maybe focus, even though his pH is probably neutral to slightly high, try to get some more calcium out there. And I find gypsum's a real good fit for that. You know, like you, I don't pay a lot of attention to those ratios. I have occasionally run into that with phosphorus and zinc as well. And a guy will, will show me a soil report and he's got a hundred part per million phosphorus. And he says, well, I, you know, I, I want a one to 10 ratio. So now I need uh, 10 part per million zinc. And no, no, you don't. Uh, <laughs> and there are people that, like you say, will, will disagree a little bit with that. Uh, but frankly, when they disagree with me on something like that, it just means they're wrong. So. Okay. Well, I'll go with that. <laughs> I would also comment on and, and, and again it's not real widespread but I am seeing some of it in Nebraska and in other places where it's a little bit surprising to me um, we can see 
magnesium numbers you mentioned that are 25 to 30 percent and this is not would not be in the sand hills or not be on a sand um, type soil environment that we're talking about but maybe more along the platter of the elkhorn rivers where we've got some pretty good soil textures and we've got in places quite a bit of magnesium there as compared to the sand hills where they're usually looking and needing more magnesium to be applied for for good crop growth the comment i would also add is that um, i've seen some opportunities and situations where we look at the sodium numbers at first glance they, they're not real significant or don't appear to be but if we run those through some tools that uh, that we work with cva on like our um, soil amendment calculator it may still recommend the application of a small amount of gypsum just to counteract the effects of sodium in some environments and sodium and magnesium again are going to do in the soil very similar things but not identical things they'll tend to make the soil very prismatic or columnar it'll tend to pull itself together and not disperse it or flocculate soils which calcium on the other hand tends to do so um certainly agree with you that you know areas where we both grew up in iowa heavier um, soil areas like iowa or the eastern corn belt where we've got soils that have CEC values of 25 or higher very commonly. A lot of times we've got too much magnesium in those soils and um, soil environment is just a little bit less than what we'd like to see. We compare that with Nebraska, a lot coarser soils in many areas, um, lower CEC values. Typically we're looking to add some magnesium, but I would also say is that the value of, of good soil test the value of working with an agronomist to understand that um, a resource like yourself, that maybe there's some other questions that the soil test has the information on, but we're not sure how to ask that or not aware what to ask, as well as maybe places where we took a basic soil test instead of a complete soil analysis. And there's some questions that we should have asked but failed to. And so I think it's just the value of working again with an industry partner like CVA that has a good understanding, has a good knowledge base, has a lot of understanding and expectations and education for the agronomists out there that they that works for CVA as far as what should we be doing, what questions should we be asking, are there some things that I'm kind of overlooking here and they have a network and a, a way to get those questions answered and brought to light without uh, the grower kind of paying the yield price in some manner? Yeah. Let's switch gears a little bit, Glenn. I'm going to hit you up on crops a little bit. So as you look at gypsum as both a source of calcium and sulfur, you know, it seems like as we you know, look at the crops across CBA's territory, uh, you know, certainly corn, soybeans are big drivers. We've got wheat out there, um, got some alfalfa out there. You know, which crops do you really look at with gypsum? Is there just absolutely uh, uh, slam dunk and which are more of it? Well, you've got multiple options out there. Well, I think the one that um, from some experiences that I've had personally when I was in retail myself is, is probably the first one to look at is a forage crop, yeah. whether it's alfalfa, whether it's a, a native or improved pasture out there or rangeland is, is that forage crop, if we're harvesting dry matter, and I would also throw in their corn silage in the same area. 
same category. If we're harvesting large amounts of dry matter, either mechanically or through an, a livestock operation and, and letting the cattle graze for themselves, if we're not having the amount of sulfur out there that the plant really responds to and, and needs to fully utilize all the nutrients that are out there, including nitrogen, if we're lacking sulfur, we're, we're paying the bill and, and we're getting the bill, but we're not being able to fully utilize everything else that's working out there. So um, to me, if we're putting planting alfalfa or another forage crop, if we're neglecting or overlooking sulfur application overall, um, we're missing the boat big time. And certainly there's a lot of synthetic or commercial fertilizers out there like SO4, like ammonium sulfate or ammonium thiosulfate, um, things like manure. All of them can contribute sulfur to that plant and soil environment, but they don't all do so equally and in the same way as far as solubility or when it's going to happen. And there are oftentimes is also some side effects like one's acidifying or it brings in some other things. So if we use something like KMAG, you know, we're going to bring sulfur and magnesium and potassium out there. That's a great thing in a lot of in cases. But if we already have plenty of potassium, we don't need more magnesium, maybe KMAG is not the right choice for that given soil environment. So having a a good arsenal of tools to draw from um, just makes a lot of sense to me. I look at gypsum as it fits in a lot of situations. It does not fit in every. And, um, you know, sometimes folks have described gypsum as kind of a crescent wrench or a pipe wrench. It'll fit a lot of different situations. You just adjust how much you put it on there or how it's applied and things like that. And I don't disagree with that, um, but I do think that there's times when you need a, a 916th box end ratchet wrench with a double offset and trying to make a 10 inch crescent wrench fit in that same situation just is a little awkward. So um, having a, a good understanding of what you need and a great arsenal of what you can use makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, that makes sense to me too, Glenn. You know, if you've got a higher pH soil and you're using a high nitrogen use crop like corn in high pH soil, you know, ammonium sulfate is going to be really hard to beat as far as its effectiveness. Now, it's not something you're going to want to throw on the fall before necessarily. Now, a heavier soil, it's probably not a big issue, not much loss, and there's certainly no uh, negative environmental impact from sulfur leaching. Now, the extra nitrogen, you might not want that to leach. But I do like gypsum in a lot of cases. You know, we don't pay as much attention to calcium as we probably should. You know, grower, like you said, growers of forages, they've learned that they do need that additional calcium out there. We take a lot of calcium out in our crops and we're kind of spoiled that, you know, in our soils that have two and three and 4,000 part per million calcium, that we think it's an endless supply. And what shows up in the soil test isn't necessarily what can make it into the plant. So I like gypsum as a tool to just get some calcium out there, whether it's for the plant itself or whether that's for soil structure and water infiltration. Yeah, I think uh, gypsum is, a, is a, again, one of those tools that we can utilize as we need to and in manners that's very adaptable to, uh, to a given situation. Um, other products are out there that can also fit in, in some of those situations exactly the same, but there's, again, some, some things as calcium, doesn't have calcium, has nitrogen, doesn't have nitrogen. Some of those additional things that come with uh, a various material are, are worth looking at. So, you know, gypsum is a source of, of sulfur. 
It's a source of calcium. It's a very soluble and a very versatile tool. It fits in many, but not all situations. Yeah. I appreciate these last couple episodes. You've given us two, two good products in 98G and SO4 that are truly uh, multi-use tools in the toolbox. You know, we can do things like adjust pH. We can add calcium to the soil. We can add sulfur. Um, you know, for growers that only think that, that the only thing you need is anhydrous ammonia and a little map. Um, we've got a lot of other tools out there that do different things and will complement those other products, those other tools we've got. Anything uh, that we still need to cover, Glenn, or do we cover it pretty well? You know, I think we did a, a great thing as far as kind of digging into gypsum. I would just um, comment on is that gypsum is a material that's in abundance in a lot of different landscapes. There are different flavors, if you will, of gypsum. Um, the gypsum that we utilize from North Central Iowa is a material called dihydrate gypsum. So it's calcium combined with sulfur, and both of those are combined with two molecules of water. So it's calcium sulfate dihydrate. There's other gypsums out there in different landscapes that um, are anhydrite, so they lack water molecules. And, um, you know, the space shuttle, when it was flying a number of years ago, they used to land it on occasionally white sands of New Mexico. Well, those white sands, as they're known, are actually gypsum deposits. But the gypsum that's there um, chemically is a lot different than the gypsum that we use from from Iowa as far as its solubility, as far as, you know, how weathered it is, et cetera. And so, you know, there's sheetrock out there, wallboard, plaster of Paris, if you break an arm, all those are different versions, if you will, or flavors of gypsum, as it's described. And um, run across those once in a while, somebody wants to use some some recycled wallboard or they've got access to a, um, you know, material from a power plant where they're using the gypsum as a byproduct today um, from burning coal and, and capturing the sulfur. So again, it's a good opportunity to, to know what you're looking with, uh, have a good lab analysis so you have a good understanding of that and, um, you know, makes a decision that makes sense for you. But uh, just realize that like everything, there's no free lunch. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, when we talk about gypsum and in your conversation or our conversation together, we're talking about a mined product coming out of a, a gypsum mine. Uh, construction demolition debris with a lot of uh, wallboard in it. Sometimes that gets ground up as uh, waste gypsum and another one would be the flue gas gypsum, like you talked about there just a second ago. That's your power generation. That's getting the sulfur out of the coal. You react that with lime generally, and that creates a calcium sulfate or gypsum product. It is a waste product. It does have a lot of impurities in there. It can have some heavy metals. Just get a good analysis and make sure you know what you're dealing with. But a lot of times when something's cheap, there's a reason it's cheap. Um, all right, Glenn, well, I really appreciate Go ahead. This is from the man who likes to, uh, who enjoys free lunches as well as I do. Absolutely. I really appreciate you taking the time to spend with our growers, Glenn. Uh, thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll uh, catch our growers again next time. Thanks for joining us on Soil Talk. Thank you for joining us on Soil Talk. If you'd like to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter at ACS by CVA. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Central Valley Ag. If you'd like more information, visit cvacoop.com and you can see our agronomy focus blog series every other Thursday. With Soil Talk, this is Mick Godekin and Tim Mundorf.